At the height of her power, the pirate leader Cheng Yi Sao commanded approximately 70,000 pirates aboard 1,200 vessels. And just to put that in perspective, Blackbeard's crew reached a high of about 700 pirates. For roughly a decade, she terrorized the South China Sea and caused issues not only with the Qing Dynasty of China, but also the British and Portuguese empires. Join me today as we look into probably the most successful pirate of all history. Hello, and welcome back to Undressed Historia, a podcast that discusses women in history and their legacy. I'm your host, Margot Collins. I just want to take a minute here and give out a podcast recommendation. Please check out the Wonders of the World podcast. It is a great podcast that discusses great places and its history and travel. And I was lucky enough to be on the episode on the catacombs of Kamel Shakafa, where we discuss Cleopatra, so please check it out. So before we get started on Cheng Yi Sao, I want to briefly discuss piracy in China. China's golden age of piracy was between the years 1520 to 1810 and contained three major eras of piracy. The first cycle was defined as merchant pirates during the Ming Dynasty from 1520 to 1575. Second were the rebel pirates during the Ming-Qing Dynasty transition between 1620 and 1684, and the last were commoner pirates of the Qing Dynasty from 1780 to 1810. For our episode today, we're interested in that last cycle of piracy, the quote-unquote commoner pirates. As in the name, what made up the vast majority of these pirates were the common folk, young and out-of-work fishermen, merchants, and sailors that were driven into piracy due to poverty. And for quite a few, it was a part-time job, just like any other. Not many became career pirates. I don't want to lose track here with the next thing I'm going to say, so keep in mind that again, these are pirates. So when they didn't have something worked out with the locals, they were violent criminals who plundered, murdered, tortured, and burned down villages. However, in regards to villagers who had an arrangement with pirates, they were considered something like heroes or social champions. So what were these pirates doing that earned a positive outlook from allied shore communities? Well, as it turns out, those pirates were contributing to the economic, social, and cultural development of China just as much as they were wreaking havoc on the economy. They would sell their booty at below market prices and would buy goods and services above market price. Two examples of this are... In 1809, a man purchased tobacco from pirates for an unspecified amount of money. He took the goods to a market and sold them for 700 copper cash to a man who then took the tobacco further inland and resold it for 1,140 cash. Around 1805, two men spent $30 at a market on rice and several other items to sell the goods to pirates, who in turn paid 40 There are also reports of soldiers who would sell their weapons to pirates who would pay 10 times their normal cost. So given their prices, it made sense for many to trade with pirates. In fact, it was reported in 1805 that peasants traveled as far as 150 kilometers, so over 93 miles, because their prices were so good. To the pirates themselves, they referred to their actions as, quote, levying duties on personal wealth, end quote. 
Their goal wasn't to disrupt trade, but gain a better share in it. With that mindset, it makes sense that some pirates didn't consider themselves outlaws, and instead considered their actions justifiable. They certainly weren't playing the part of Robin Hood, though, but they were taking from what this one article labeled as, quote, the traditional enemies of the peasants, end quote. So landlords, corrupt officials, etc. In other words, those who had something worth stealing. The peasants in turn admired and supported pirates and bandits. It should also be noted that during this time in China, we see a lot of uprisings and rebellions. We also see a lot of natural disasters in southern China, too. Floods, typhoons, earthquakes, and droughts all contributed to famine and other chaos. On the other hand, these pirates were organized. They had this huge underground network to support this shadow economy, and that included ports, lairs, and strongholds located in both out-of-the-way islands and near major commercial hubs. Okay, one more thing about these pirates before I can start with our actual topic. Their primary source of income wasn't from looting, but actually from ransom payments and protection fees. Gangs and pirates sold safe conduct passes to fishing and cargo vessels, and they levied fees on merchants and shopkeepers. They took this seriously, too. If a pirate ship attacked and robbed a fishing boat that had a safe conduct pass, the pirate chief made his men return what was stolen and compensate the victims with money for damages. So we have organized pirates who were trustworthy, as long as you were an ally. You could count on them for trade and good prices when the actual market wasn't always as fair. However, if you were someone that the pirates would target, then that's another story. So that was the world Ching Shi was born into. And I'll be adding more background information on these pirates when we get there. But I wanted to briefly do an overview on piracy, because as much as we know what Ching Shi accomplished during her time as a pirate leader, we really don't know much about her. Case in point would be her name. We actually don't know her birth name. To history, she is usually referred to as Cheng Yi Sao, which is translated to Wife of Ching Yi, and Ching Shi, which means Widow of Ching. So either name is really in reference to her husband. She's either the Wife of or Widow. Now while I was researching for this episode, another name started coming up as her actual birth name. The name is Shi Shenggu, which I cannot verify where this came from. All of my older sources seem to confirm we don't know her actual name, but all these newer sources are coming up with Shi Zhenggu, and unfortunately, I don't read Chinese, so I can't dive deep and figure out where this came from and how reliable the source is. So for today, I'll refer to her as Cheng Yi Sao, Ching Shi, or Madam Ching, as those are the most common names she goes by. So what we know about her before her marriage was that she was born in 1775, and she was a Cantonese prostitute who worked on one of the floating brothels, sometimes referred to as flower boats. And that's it. Yeah, I was not exaggerating when I said we don't know much about her, and I'll go into that after her story as to why that is. In 1801, she married the pirate leader Ching Yi. The Ching family had been involved in piracy since the late 17th century, and they were doing well as privateers under the patronage of the Tai Sun rulers in Vietnam. 
One of my sources mentioned that the couple had two sons. However, they are not mentioned in any of my other sources, so I have names and years of birth, but they were never mentioned again. I'm not sure what happened there. Either they were lost to historical record, or maybe there was a mistranslation, and they weren't born to Chang'e Sao and her husband. The two took an equal share of Chang'e's power and command. Now, that's not totally unusual. Entire families and communities would and did live on boats in the southern China seas, so it was expected for women and children to work on board. In a lot of cases that included women holding a rank and commanding ships, or junks as they're called, and some even fought alongside men. At the time of their marriage, Chang Yi was one of several contenders for power, and just a few short months after the wedding, Cheng Yi and his wife were at the forefront. In July 1802, the Taishan rulers were deposed, and with it went their support of communication and cooperation among their network of pirates. Cheng Yi and Cheng Yi Sao led the pirates to re-establish their power. Cheng Yi was the unifier and leader, and Cheng Yi Sao was the consolidator and organizer. And together they were able to unify small gangs of pirates into one confederation. By 1804, this confederation was made up of 400 junks and 70,000 men. From this one confederation, there were six squadrons, made up of the red, white, black, blue, green, and yellow flags. Each flag squadron was commanded by a leader who owed, quote, ultimate obedience, end quote, to the Cheng family through personal and familial obligations. Unifying different groups of pirates who were often fighting amongst themselves was no easy feat, even more so when the numbers of members were that high. They successfully re-established their base across the border in China and arguably made themselves the most powerful outlaws of their time. Unfortunately, this didn't last very long. In November of 1807, Cheng Yi died unexpectedly. Now, traditionally, that would mean that the wife would be expected to remain a chaste widow for the rest of her life. Remarriage was very rare for women. Men looked upon marrying a widow as shameful. It was like taking, quote, a secondhand article, end quote. As a quick side note, it was considered normal for men to remarry. So at the end of today's episode, I will go further into women in the Qing Dynasty, China, but for now, the expectation was for her to step down from power and remain a widow. She did not. The next steps she took cemented herself at the top of the pirate hierarchy. Her first course of action was to get the support of Cheng Yi's most powerful surviving chieftains. Second, she built on those loyalties that the leaders owed to her husband and made herself indispensable to them and convinced them all that their best interest was in collaboration. When he was alive, her husband was in command of the Red Flag Fleet, which was the most powerful squadron. So she realized quickly that she needed to select a new leader of the Red Fleet that would remain loyal to her and then the remaining colored flags would be under the red. She needed someone who the other pirate leaders would follow, someone trustworthy enough to handle the day-to-day 
and most importantly, be loyal to her and the Cheng family. For Ching Shi, the man she selected for this role was Cheng Pao. Cheng Pao was the son of a fisherman who had been captured by Cheng Yi when he was 15 years old. He joined the pirates shortly after his capture in 1798 and became the protege of Cheng Yi, which included a sexual relationship. Cheng Yi later adopted him into his family as a son and promoted him to captain of a junk. So I didn't look too much into this as it really wasn't relevant to Ching Shi, but sexual relationships between older and younger men, as well as the practice of adopting abducted teenage boys as sons, was commonplace among gangs and pirates at this time in China. Choosing Cheng Pao made sense. He already demonstrated an ability as a leader, and since he joined the Confederation as an outsider under Cheng Yi, he didn't form any loyalties to other pirate leaders. Cheng Shi then formed her own sexual relationship with Cheng Pao to further their alliance, and within weeks, the two became lovers. And just to keep track of time here, this happened in 1807. Cheng Shi was about 32, and Cheng Pao was about 24 years old. Up to this point, the pirate hierarchy was based on a series of allegiances, but that was about to change. Cheng Pao created a code of laws for all to follow, and Ching Shi took those laws and created a formal power structure based on rules rather than familial allegiances. I'm going to read an excerpt from this one article that described the code of laws. This is from Diane Murray's One Woman's Rise to Power, Cheng Yi's wife and the pirates. Quote, the code was severe. Anyone caught giving commands on his own or disobeying those of a superior was immediately decapitated. Pilfering from the common treasury or public fund and stealing from the villagers who supplied the pirates were also capital offenses. Desertion or absence without leave resulted in an offender's being paraded through squadrons after having his ears cut off. Sexual offenses against female captives were also severely punished. If a pirate committed rape, or if there was fornication by mutual consent, the offending parties were put to death. And although it was customary procedure for the pirates to take their most beautiful captives as concubines and wives, once a pirate had chosen such a wife, he was obligated to be faithful to her." End quote. Cheng Pao also had a control over the religious beliefs of the Confederation. He had a temple built aboard one of his largest vessels that each pirate leader would go to and pray before each mission. Prior to these prayers, Cheng Pao met with the priests in order to establish the best course of action. That way it seemed to everyone that the gods supported Cheng Pao's plans. Next, Ching Shi was the only person to approve business transactions. She gave out permission for operations to be carried out, and at the end of every mission, the booty had to be inspected by the group and recorded into the ship's ledgers by an accountant. She had the final authority on who to reward and who to punish. Building on the economic side of this, Ching Shi used the Pirate Code of Laws to be the final voice of authority on finances. In most cases, 20% of all captured goods were allocated to the actual parties involved, and the remainder were brought to the 
Pirates Joint Treasury. Ching Shi also had the insight to realize that profits from extortion and piracy weren't going to cut it for a confederation of their size. So she went into the salt trade. Well, kind of. The pirates of Ching Shi's confederation led a series of attacks that captured fleet after fleet until, quote, only four of the government's 270 officially built junks remained outside their control, end quote. After that, the vessels continued to haul salt, but on the pirates' terms. Soon after, salt junks had to purchase safe conduct passes from the pirates in order to avoid trouble. I mentioned earlier that the pirates also traded with select villages, as well as forced fishermen and merchants to purchase safe conduct passes, so I don't need to repeat myself here, but know that this confederation practiced that a lot. So as if Ching Shi and Cheng Pao don't sound impressive enough as leaders, they both were capable military strategists. Ching Shi was commander-in-chief of the whole confederation, and Cheng Pao was in command of the largest squadron. I'm going to quote the same article as before to help further explain. Quote, As a capable military strategist in her own right, Cheng Yi's wife cleverly deployed forces up and down the coast planning and coordinating her offenses well in advance so that her designs usually succeeded. As a result, she was able not only to enforce compliance with her protection system, but also to overpower the provincial navy and challenge fortresses on land, end quote. By 1808, the Pirate Confederation under Ching Shi proved to be a force to be reckoned with. To name a few of their achievements from that year, they killed the provincial commander-in-chief, they destroyed most of the vessels that the government allocated for Canton's defense, so much so that the government was forced to hire over 30 private junks temporarily to increase Navy forces. All in all, they destroyed 63 out of the 135 vessel allotment of Kwangtung Navy. In 1809, they captured a brig that belonged to the Portuguese governor of Timor and blockaded a tribute mission that had just arrived from Siam at the mouth of the river. They also threatened to attack Canton. So at this point, officials in Canton reached for outside help from both the British and Portuguese. From the British, they negotiated the temporary use of their ship Mercury, outfitted with 20 cannons and 50 American volunteers. And the Portuguese leased them six men-of-war ships to sail with the Imperial Navy. So that doesn't sound like much, but that was a big deal. Qing Dynasty China was very restrictive of Western powers getting involved in their business. Also, I'm getting a little bit ahead here, but Chang Pao negotiated terms with the British and Portuguese so they could continue trade without being bothered by the pirates. This showed just how much of a presence these pirates had in their heyday. Now we're reaching the end of our story. The Chinese government failed to destroy Ching Shi and her pirate confederation, so they switched tactics and began to offer the pirates amnesty. Cheng Shi recognized this as an opportunity. She also must have known when to quit while ahead, 
and she took the lead in negotiations after Cheng Pao failed at surrendering in February of 1810. On April 18, 1810, Ching Shi, in the company of women and children, went unarmed to the governor's headquarters in Canton, and two days later, the official surrender took place. So, here were the terms. Any pirate that came forward voluntarily was allowed to keep what they got during their time as a pirate and were given places in the imperial military. Chang Pao himself was given the rank of lieutenant, allowed to keep a private fleet of about 20 to 30 junks, and he was paid a large sum of money. If you weren't impressed with her accomplishments before, you should be now. How many times can an outlaw be that successful and then retire? Anyway, we don't know much after she retired from piracy. At some time in 1810, Ching Shi and Chang Pao were married and had a son. Chang Pao was promoted to the position of lieutenant colonel and died in 1822. Ching Shi moved back to Canton and owned a gambling house and later died in 1844 at the age of 69. And that is the story of Ching Shi. It's a story we don't know all the details to, and honestly, at certain points, it sounds made up. In many ways, Ching Shi was the opposite of what society in China in the 1800s thought of women. She was intelligent and capable as a leader in a multitude of subjects, business, politics, diplomacy, you name it. She gave out orders to men and women alike, and she could negotiate terms of retirement for her lover and partner and crew members. As historian Diane Murray wrote, being connected to Ching Shi gave men an opportunity for upward mobility, as opposed to the tradition of marriage giving women the opportunity for upward social mobility. Not to mention that she was arguably the most successful pirate of all time, and instead of dying in a fight or an execution, she went unarmed and negotiated retirement with the Chinese government. Now, the question I want to end this show with is how? How could a woman like Cheng Shi even exist at that time and place? Don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining here. And it's frustrating that we don't know more about this woman. But seriously, how? Historically speaking, women in China were regarded as secondhand citizens. In Confucian society, a woman's most important role was wife and daughter-in-law. Once married, she belonged to her husband's family and had to be obedient. As in many cultures and countries, daughters weren't exactly hoped for, as they couldn't inherit anything and the parents usually had to spend money to marry them off. One interesting fact I found was that it was common that after a succession of daughters, parents would name their daughters in relation to a son. For example, and I apologize for my pronunciation, Zaudi meant calling for a brother, Lingnan meant leading to a boy, and Yingdi meant welcoming a brother. And sometimes they were just named first daughter, second daughter, and so on. So given that information, that does provide a possible explanation of why we don't know Ching Shi's birth name. There are quite a few Chinese sayings and poems that warn against men taking orders from women. For example, quote, the one with long hair is usually short-sighted, end quote. And, quote, 
A woman with a long tongue is like a stepping stone to disorder. Disorder does not come down from heaven. It is produced by women, end quote. So how does a woman become a leader in a society where women leaders are frowned upon? One thought is that this Confucian society was more of an ideal than an actuality. Like footbinding, maybe this was only obtainable by the upper classes, since lower classes couldn't afford to lose another laborer. Another thing to consider is that people like prostitutes and those who lived their lives on boats weren't really part of society. They were considered more as outsiders. So it makes sense that pirates wouldn't exactly follow traditional gender roles. Piracy offered many things, including an alternative way of life for both men and especially women. So given all that information, it's totally possible for a woman like Ching Shi to be as successful as she was as an outlaw. Thank you everyone for listening to this episode on Ching Shi, and I appreciate everyone's patience on waiting for this episode to come out. It was very frustrating trying to find enough sources and information on her, so I hope you enjoyed listening. Please join me in two weeks for a brand new episode. With this episode concluded, I request that you review my podcast on iTunes and any other app you get your podcast from. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated, and I can be reached by email at undressedhistoria at gmail.com, as well as other social media platforms. Undressed Historia is researched, written, and produced by me, Margot Collins. If you enjoy this podcast, you can follow me on the following social media platforms to stay up to date on everything happening. Our Instagram and Facebook is Undressed Historia Podcast. And our Twitter is Historia underscore pod. Music used in the intro and outro is from Juke Deck. Create your own at jukedeck.com. Thanks again and tune in next time.